I love talking about life, John, but I don't think we say enough about death. What do we have to say about death? Not that much, but I know somebody who's an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker in this very topic, Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter, and she has agreed to step in. Great. Let's get to it. Welcome to Care Talk, your happy home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, who do we have today? Well, I think we have, we, is there a doctor in the house? I think we have Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. And I know, John, you're always threatening to end my life, um, which I never appreciate. And I hope the censors don't hear that. But today we're going to talk about a very serious topic, John, end of life issues. Well, and I, and I think putting the patient and, and sort of the care back into healthcare, and there's no one, no authority I can think better to help us guide through those issues as Shoshana, who comes to it not as uh, an expert, but as an evangelist for a more humane approach to end of life care. Shoshana, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Shoshana, maybe, maybe we could start with kind of how you got to end of life as an issue for you, you know, you're, you're, you're a doctor, uh, you know, you, you trained as a, as an internist, what drew the passion out of you for this issue? And what are you, what are you trying to, what are we trying to solve for here? Yeah, well, I could, I could probably talk for hours about the story that got me here, but, uh, you know, really I I went into, uh, medical school and early residency thinking I wanted to be a cardiologist. I loved, uh, sort of dealing with pathophysiology and understanding, you know, how the heart and the lungs and the, you know, the body kind of work together, uh, in, in, in illness and, and in health. And, uh, I was totally blown away and quite surprised myself uh, to become interested in the end of life. And it was really by accident in doing my required months learning about intensive care medicine. And um, I was struck uh, by the number of often older adults who were quite frail at baseline and had multiple chronic illnesses they were dealing with and ended up in the ICU because of you know, widely metastatic cancer or end stage organ failure. And these people in their 80s, their 90s were spending their their final days, weeks of life hooked up to tubes and machines and hidden away from the people that they love and surrounded by all these strangers. And uh, it occurred to me that number one, they didn't have a say in that trajectory, meaning that by default in the United States, you will receive very aggressive, invasive treatment in a hospital, no matter how old you are, no matter how sick you are. And sometimes even if it won't help you, um, you know, we, we have lots of, of protocols in in this country and the way that we learn medicine is such that, uh, doing things to people and more is always better. And for some people, that's absolutely true. And we save lives every day in our ICUs because of it. But for other people, it doesn't make sense. And we aren't stopping uh, to ask really important questions of our patients and their families, like what matters most to you? What does a good day look like for you? And if time is short, how do you want to be spending your time? We get caught up in this sort of uh, protocolized conveyor belt, you know, of care. And, um, so the number one thing that occurred to me was that 
you know, people didn't have a say. And then the second thing was that we weren't stopping to ask these really, really important questions along the journey of care, not just in this acute crisis moment, um, to find out how we can best support people's goals and values around living their best life. And then, you know, tailor our care based on the answers to those questions. And so that's what really set me on a path to be thinking about improving the end of life experience, thinking about the ways that we can use things like uh, palliative care, like hospice, which as you know, is a form of palliative care for people who are reasonably within six months at the end of their lives, and how we can all think more holistically as a culture about uh, questions related to um, a human-centered experience around, around illness and around the end of life, inclusive of grief and caregiving and things that all human beings are going to encounter in their lives if they haven't already. You know, things that you say about uh, about this really ring true for me, and especially in the in the U.S. context uh, in terms of the culture, the technology, and so on. You know, how how did we get to this point? And you you know specifically mentioned the U.S. I don't know if you've if you studied elsewhere, but you know why why is it like this in in the U.S.? Because I think is a way that most people are not happy. Yeah, I'm definitely more uh, knowledgeable about the United States as opposed to other countries. But you know what I would say is that. Uh, you know, around 100 years ago, we didn't have modern medicine, right? We we weren't focused so much on institutions and hospitals as places of care. Most people uh, who became ill were treated in their own homes, their doctor or their nurse or some kind of community health worker, which of course it wasn't called at the time, but someone came to the home, cared for patients in their own beds. And then when people were near the end of their lives, they were laid out in their parlor, surrounded by their family and maybe their friends. And and death was sort of talked about, thought about, expected. People knew what to do when a loved one died because it happened in the home. And it wasn't until we became very advanced, right, in medical technology, of which there are, you know, of course, wonderful, obvious benefits there, but that you know, the, the end of life experience, the experience of illness really is, is hidden away from most people. Um, and so therefore, culturally speaking, we're not really thinking about it. We're not seeing it necessarily as a part of life and we sure aren't planning around it. Uh, and so I think for, for a number of reasons, um, death is really seen in, in medicine as a failure, something to be avoided at all costs. And, you know, I think from from all the reasons that I mentioned, you know, historically and otherwise, we we sort of see it, you know, still as this very taboo topic. That's not to say that this is something easy to talk about and we should be overjoyed to discuss death and dying. That's not not at all the case. It is definitely hard uh, and comes with its, you know, inherent uh, emotional challenges. But it's something that I think is a natural part of life. And the more that we can have some relationship to the fact that one day life ends, the better I think we can live every day and for sure equip the people that we love with the right information for us if they have to speak for us uh, near the end of our lives. You know, Shoshana, what, what I'm still struck by is how big the gap is between what people want. As you know, at CareCentrics, we bought a palliative care, community-based palliative care end-of-life company last year, Turnkey, because we thought it was a natural extension of taking care of the chronically ill. But I believe the numbers are still about 80% of people want to die at home, and only about less than 20% are given that option. What is it about our system? I mean, is there anything else that, that, that you can point to that got us to this 
this, not over-medicalization in general, that is perhaps true, but definitely over-medicalization and detachment of humanity in those critical kind of stutter steps towards the end. I mean, you've really studied this. I, I'm, I'm still stunned at the disconnect between families' intents, families' intentions, and 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 how they how families are served and and uh, I just it's it's frustrating as all get out. You know it absolutely is, and it's it's very complicated. I think there's so many points along the way where we have these missteps. Absolutely, I, you know, to me the big thing that stands out, and I don't know that this is the answer, um, is that it's conversations are not taking place along the way to make sure that the care that people receive is care that they really want and that's in line with their goals and their values. And so what we do know um, is that we are not training doctors in how to have difficult conversations with patients. We're not giving them the tools that they need in order to connect with patients, connect with families and caregivers um, years upstream from you know, an acute crisis moment. Um, it is not something that is valued within medicine because it's not something that's reimbursed, right? So that is slowly changing over time. But a, a Journal of the American Medical Association study came out in 2016 showing that uh, of all the clinicians surveyed, um, 70% of them, that 7-0, had not been trained and how to talk to their patients about hard things. That's shocking when you think about the fact that surgeons you know, depending on your specialty of surgery, spend seven years, right? Learning how to, how to take out a gallbladder or do some other kind of procedure. We need to be treating communication training as a procedure in medicine. I think I've shared this story with you before, but my father had a brain bleed at a football game, the Harvard Penn game, many about 10 years ago. And he was recommended immediately. He was shot into the, the medical industrial complex of Mass General. And at 6.30 at night, I got a call from my mother. I was rushing to the hospital from Connecticut. And the recommendation was for traumatic brain surgery. And so I immediately convened a meeting of my mother and my brothers, their, their spouses, my spouse. And we literally had an intervention with the surgeons and the staff where we went through very specifically what his life was likely to be and what rehab was likely to be. And everyone got an opportunity to talk. And between the time that these, this, the, the, and I very vividly remembered this in front of a restaurant and a, and a bus stop in 95, beginning of the conversation at the end of the conversation, the surgeons had a completely different recommendation. And it was almost like they couldn't, they couldn't, their eyes couldn't rise from the procedure in front of them. And it, it, at least to me, it felt like, and it, when it gave everybody an opportunity to grieve a little bit for what might or could or whiz, but, but, but also to focus exactly on the choices at hand in what it meant in terms of life or illness, disability, death, and, and care. And, it, and we, 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 come, we literally, at the end of it, the surgeon said, you know what, this is not a path that we should go in for your dad. It was, it was remarkable. But th that was, and it was purely instinct that had me kind of convene a family meeting on demand, and then also included a doctor who was not part of the family, was not part of the care team, to make sure that we were asking very precise questions of the doctors. 
And it was literally, I think the entire family and the doctors were in one place at the beginning of the call and everyone was at a different one. And he, he died in peace without the, the, the trauma and drama of what was likely to be a, a, a failed surgery. It brought, it, brought, it brought your point home very personally. So, Shauna, these, these conversations, I think, are really, are really helpful. Um, and, but I wanted to say you've certainly helped to spark some of them, but you've also gone beyond that and made at least three films that I'm aware of. And could you maybe talk about what was you know, sort of behind that and what, what the intent and the impact has, has been there? Sure, absolutely. Well, the first thing that I realized is that the end of life experience, at least from my perspective, is not a medical issue alone to be solved. This is a human issue. We need more people thinking about this, talking about it, innovating, collaborating, right? And so the first thing you know I did was I started a nonprofit called Endwell that's explicitly focused on interdisciplinary collaboration to go from thought to action to transform this experience for people into something that's more human centered. And then, you know, what we realized is that um, there are, there are many ways to reach people out there um, through social media of which we, we we leverage quite often. Um, And then, you know, other traditional media like film. And I had a, a really unique opportunity by accident back in 2015, got involved with a short documentary project called Extremis that uh, this was a, a film being shot in Highland at Highland Hospital in Oakland, right just across the bay from where I was. And um, really was, a, was a, a beautiful project that showed what I had often um, wished more people had access to, which was knowing what it is like to be sick, gravely ill in an intensive care unit for families, for patients, um, for healthcare professionals. Uh, of which, unless you have been sick yourself or worked in that type of uh, facility, you don't really know. Um, And you don't know what questions necessarily to ask and how to best advocate for the people that you love in these moments, just much like how John was describing. And um, so Extremis is a a 23-minute short documentary, happened to be the first film that Netflix ever, first short documentary that Netflix ever bought. And we were nominated for an Academy Award um, and then, you know, the, the reception of that film was really mind blowing to me that so many people, including the Academy were, were willing to engage with such a hard, intense topic. And it was able to get out there to millions and millions of people. And so I was lucky enough to get involved with a second, uh, short documentary called end game with a totally different film team. Um, and I executive produced that film about hospice and, uh, also palliative care, filmed in San Francisco at UCSF and Zen Hospice Project, which unfortunately no longer exists, uh, but features the wonderful work of Dr. B.J. Miller. And that film was was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's been very encouraging to me to see the reception uh, of projects um, that are traditionally very challenging topics, but are so incredibly important to kind of bridge this what, what you were mentioning earlier, this awareness gap of, of what is hospice, what is palliative care, um, how to best advocate for yourselves in these really, really important moments in time. And, and just remember to advocate for yourself that there is a role of the, of the caregiver and the patient that, that, that you need to be kind of aggressive about. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what the Zen hospice got right. It didn't have a great economic model, but it was a remarkable place. And BJ's a remarkable man. Maybe maybe if you could just perhaps reflect a little bit on that, because I feel like having lost it, 
we may lose some of the lessons from that humanization attempt to really create the most the art of humanizing the end of life. Well, I don't know that I can say it better than that, but Zen Hospice Project was a was a beautiful um, you know model uh, set inside of a, an old Victorian home in San Francisco where they had a six bed you know hospice treating patients who were you know near the end of their lives and they and they focused on things like like music and art and uh, and food and uh, the aesthetics around um, the experience. So even if somebody was completely you know bed bound or you know maybe unable to speak or bathe themselves, there there were so many other more ex- you know experiential elements of life um, that I think get forgotten in a traditional healthcare setting or in a uh, assisted living facility, for example, where they really, uh, focus on all of the senses for people, no matter um, their, their physical state, and and really just brought such a beautiful experience for so many patients and families. And I obviously miss the miss the place quite a lot. Um, but it's a model that you know I, they, they've been trying to pilot in other places, and a beautiful model of caregiving, frankly. Shoshan, obviously the COVID nineteen pandemic has been ongoing now for it's getting close to a year. Um, hear a lot of things about, you know, people being not even if they're dying, but just being alone if they're in the, in the hospital. And certainly if they, uh, if they happen to perish, uh, from COVID-19, they're, they're, they're alone. What, how is COVID-19, you know, impacting, uh, end of life, you know, sort of specifically for COVID patients, but, you know, more broadly, what, what do you see COVID-19 doing to this whole discussion? Oh my goodness. So many things. Um, I, I think first and foremost, the pandemic has really shown all of us that life is incredibly fragile, right? That tomorrow is never a given, no matter how old you are. Um, it's it's shown a light on the hidden world of what it means to be a caregiver, both frontline healthcare workers, as well as informal family caregivers. And then this idea of, of loss, and, and collective grief, really, on this massive scale. Um, so there, there's so much there to dive into. But, uh, you know, on, on the clinical side, really, palliative care has become the job of, of many, many clinicians who practice in places that, you know, have been initially very hard hit by COVID and now everywhere. So like, you know, my, my ER doc colleagues and nurses, primary care physicians, ICU clinicians who maybe don't have any training in, in palliative care have had to, because of the speed and severity of COVID, um, be able to kind of learn a lot of these fundamentals, especially early on in the pandemic, and then learn on the fly, like how to talk to someone about their wishes. Do they want to be intubated? Um, if it's possible, they won't be able to come off of a, a breathing tube. You know, if, if things are looking worse, you know, do, where do they want to be? How do we connect them with the people that they love, given that you know, families, of course, cannot visit um, ill patients in the hospital. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many just heartbreaking stories I've heard of of nurses staying after their shift to, you know, hold up a, an iPad so that a loved one could, could say goodbye to their grandparent, their father. Um, it, it's just unbelievable um, what is happening and um, I think currently the degree to which we're having to start to ration care is something that really is hard to wrap your head around, even for me as a physician, that in, in uh, the 21st century in America, we don't have the beds, 
the supplies, the staff to go around to be able to care for patients and, and save lives. Um, it's it's the, now the job of uh, EMS, you know, or, or a frontline healthcare provider to decide who lives and who dies. I mean, these are conversations that we've never been trained to have or think about. And I think that the effects are going to be extremely long lasting and, and on par with, you know, uh, with the trauma that you see um, in the face of war. Um, so it's, there's a lot there. And um, unfortunately, it's showing all of us just how important, you know, the, these kinds of conversations are on a personal level and also on a societal level. You know, our, our friend, Dr. Chris Chen talked about surviving COVID and the, and, and the PTSD that he felt from the, from the isolation that was necessary for the care. And I was reflecting on David at the conversation after we finished up with him and our other care talk and how that's, that's being, that's, that's being hammered into every caregiver. I mean, perhaps the only good news about it, I think, uh, Shoshana is that we are actually starting to appreciate every level of caregiver in the system, perhaps more than we've ever, ever done before, which is, which is a well, a welcome balance to uh, 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 our, our current era where we sometimes are, are, are sort of at a loss for everyday heroism. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more on that. I mean, I, I think, you know, our, our frontline healthcare workers, um, our informal family caregivers are now really the, the backbone of uh, keeping keeping society going. It's it's just unbelievable um, and, and so important to be recognized and continue to talk about and support. Shoshana, uh, any ideas for the next uh, film? It sounds like uh, you haven't necessarily uh, exhausted uh, <laughs> the topic, given all the new things that are happening. Nothing on the horizon just yet. You know, for me, film is a wonderful platform to um, to share, you know, hard stories. And so, you know, if something comes along that that, that is a good fit there, um, uh, but but nothing right now. Okay, well, we'll we'll wait. We'll wait to see. John, any last questions before we say goodbye? No, I I, I think that the that putting the patient and the heart back in the center of care, Shoshana. It's an honor to, to, and a privilege to be able to have this conversation and to, again, focus on the kinds of things that David and I really believe in and you've passionately led about reminding people how, much, how important it is to, to be kind of heart-centered and, and, uh, and, and, and return the care to healthcare that's often lost in the medical industrial complex. So thank, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. Thanks for listening.